0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. I use Zencaster to record the Tallyroom podcast and it's an invaluable tool. I record pretty much every episode of this show remotely, with my guests joining me from wherever they happen to be. Zencaster allows us to record with high quality sound, even if the internet connection isn't the best. It records a high quality version on the local desktop and then uploads it when the internet connection allows, meaning that the audio the listeners hear is usually better than what I can hear when I'm recording. It also allows for recording video. I use it to be able to view my guests, but you can also record video in 1080p. On one or two occasions I've used Zoom instead and you really notice a difference. It's super easy to use Zencaster. I set up a link for a recording and send it to my guests and we're getting started in minutes. Go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TallyRoom and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting needs. It's time to share your story. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. We're kicking off 2024 by going overseas to preview next week's national elections in Indonesia. Voters in Indonesia will cast their votes on February 14 in the first round of the presidential election and to elect the national parliament and regional legislatures. As we speak, it looks likely that a politician with a long history of trying for the presidency may be on the verge of finally winning that role. My guest today is Erin Cook. Erin is an Australian journalist based in Southeast Asia, covering politics across the region, and she curates the Dali Mullet Care Mullet newsletter. Hello, Erin. Hi, how are you going? Thanks for coming back on. And we did a podcast last year about the Thai election, which you can check out if you go back and look through the archive. Indonesia is the world's fourth most populous country and has been holding direct presidential elections since 2004, not long after the country democratized in the late 1990s. In that time, they've had two strong presidents who have each served two five-year terms, Susula Bangbang Yudhoyono from 2004 until 2014, and Joko Widodo, or Jokowi, since 2014. Jokowi's term is coming to an end this year, but it looks like his main rival at the 2014 and 2019 elections, Probolo Subianto, is now the frontrunner with Jokowi's help. This might seem surprising to someone who maybe last paid attention to Indonesian politics during the last election in 2019. Erin, what's changed between these two men in the last five years?
1: It's surprising for people that don't pay close attention to Indonesia, but it's also surprising to, to people in Indonesia. It's a bit of a shock what happened here. So, in the immediate aftermath of the 2019 election, there was huge demonstrations in Jakarta and elsewhere in the country about. Prabowo Subianto's loss. These were quite deadly. I think five or six people died in Jakarta and some students elsewhere across the country were killed in clashes as well. Um, So it was a very violent period that was quickly sort of brought under wraps. Um, Jokowi has traditionally been really good at opening up sort of the broad tent and getting people in. But this time that meant bringing Prabowo Subianto in as defence minister and that really strengthened their relationship and then completely neutralised opposition. And then over those four or five years since then, they've just become better and better friends, really. <laughs> um, and Jokowi has done a lot in uh, moderating Prabowo's reputation, which, of course, is severely influenced by very serious, very credible allegations of human rights abuses since the 1980s in the military.
0: There's a lot to talk about. There three candidates who are running um, the party structure. Um, it's probably worth talking a little bit before we get into who's running about the way that those kind of coalitions work in Indonesian politics because there's quite a few parties and – If I'm not wrong, Jokowi, when he was elected in 2014, was part, I believe he's a member of PDIP, which is the party led by Megawati Sakana Putri, who's the former president and the daughter of the country's first president. And he was elected with the endorsement of that party, but seems to have, it's not simply a matter of him being a member of that party. It's a lot more complicated than that. And his relationship with that party isn't as simple as that might sound.
1: No, and that's been a a long problem for Jokwe. In the immediate aftermath of him winning in 2014, for about two or three years into that first term, he was uh, kind of followed with persistent rumours or even criticisms that he was very much Megawati's puppet, that Jokwe was not a president that stood on his own, that Indonesia effectively had round two of Megawati as president. There was an effort on his behalf to kind of dispel that sort of thing, be a bit more evidently independent from the party, um, which was largely successful for the next seven, eight years. Even during the twenty nineteen election, the Megawati is immensely powerful still. Even though she, you know, never won an election outright as president, she is an immensely powerful woman in in Indonesia. And in the twenty nineteen election, he Jokowi did a fairly decent job of balancing that sort of relationship with her and with the party. But in successive years, it split dramatically. Jokwe was very much of the thought that, you know, I'm the president. I've been extraordinarily successful, still very, very popular. Why do I need to keep paying allegiances to Megawati forever? So as he became increasingly independent, PDIP, there was a a division, I guess, a schism within the party of the pro-Jokowi people and the pro-Mega people. When PDRP finally nominated Ganjar Pranoa, the central Java governor, as its presidential candidate, Jokowi would not come out right and say that he was supporting Ganja for president, even though the two of them, beyond being party mates, have known each other for a long, long time. They're you know, both lawmakers from Java. They know each other. And instead, Jokowi supported Prabowo, of course, and that has led to a division that will not be healed. And it leads to a lot of questions about Jokowi's post-presidential career, as well as what PDIP does now, whether it's going to be able to firm itself up without the immensely popular Jokowi, or if PDIP may be in trouble in the years ahead.
0: I was listening to something else talking about Ganjar. Pranowo, who is the PDIP candidate, kind of suggesting that he'd been Jokowi's candidate, but then in the process of – Jokowi doesn't control the internal uh, endorsement mechanisms of PDIP, and in order to get that endorsement, he kind of needed to get a bit closer to Megawati, and that maybe alienated Jokowi. I don't know how much that's on the public record or how much that's speculation, but as he moved towards Megawati, he probably, like – to get the party nomination, he probably then lost something that was crucial for him in terms of potentially winning after he got that nomination.
1: I think it's a really, really interesting question, and I don't think, you know, the world will ever know, but finding out what happened specifically between these guys would be really, really interesting. Like this time last year, Jacqui was talking about, you know, I I stand by a grey-haired man and all sorts of things, which could only be Gunja. So it's really interesting to see what's happened in the year since.
0: And now let's talk briefly about, we say Jokowi's supporting Prabowo, but I don't believe he's come out explicitly and said, I endorse this guy. I don't think he's out there at rallies. It's more subtle than that. Can we talk about Gibran, who is um, Jokowi's older son. He's the mayor of Solo, which is the city that um, Jokowi used to be mayor of himself, I believe. And uh, he has ended up becoming Prabowo's uh, running mate after a controversial process where he's um, he's about my age, he's under 40, and the Indonesian constitution, I believe, says that you must be 40 to run for president or vice president, but that hasn't um, stood in his way.
1: No, it's, uh, oh gosh, this got very messy very quickly and then everybody seemed to have moved on a little bit. So, end of last year... Supporters of Gibran Rakabumi Raka took it to the constitutional court and they said, you know, he's under 40, but he is obviously uh, experienced. He's he's the mayor. Things are looking pretty good. Is there any way that there would be a constitutional exception to this? The court eventually rules, yes, if you're between 35 and 40, but with political experience, okay, you you can come on in. But the head of the constitutional court at this time was Anwar Usman, who is Gibran's uncle and President Jokowi's brother-in-law. So that really kicked things off. uh, (laughs) um, A lot of criticism, as you can imagine, although I think the ruling itself isn't necessarily a bad idea. It's just about who did it and who for that made it so controversial. And yeah, Gibran, he's really struggling with the Nepo baby sort of accusation, I guess. He's being a mayor of solo certainly not an easy gig, but even getting that one to begin with was very much seen as, you know, your dad's shadow, your dad's put you up to it sort of thing. So I'm, curious to see what happens with him in the years ahead if he does end up becoming vice president because i'm not sure there is a huge amount of confidence in his political abilities
0: let's talk about dynasties about family connections you know it's not unique to southeast asia but does happen a lot there admittedly you know there has been politicians in australia who are the children of other politicians but you know southeast asia and south asia has the history of you know a lot of these countries their first female leader was their daughter of the wartime Prime Minister-President kind of figure. I think that story has played out like four or five times over the region, um, including Megawati um Prabowo's, the former son-in-law of Ciccato, um, obviously Gibran and, and Jokowi, and then we see this happening in countries like the Philippines and uh, you know, family connections being big in Thailand too. What role is that playing in Indonesian politics? And maybe is, is that also a broader thing beyond just the presidential level as well?
1: When we talk about dynasties, we also have to talk about um, Kaisang, who's the other son of President Jokowi. So he's also running for, I think it's mayor of Depok, which is one of the satellite cities of Jakarta. And he's running for that with Partai Solidaritas Indonesia, which is uh, it was supposed to be sort of like the millennial social democracy party, but it's just become a vehicle for Kaisang. So I think we've seen plenty of dynasties in Indonesia, but few so transparently built in what we've seen this time around. We've got two of Jokowi's son plus his son-in-law up in North Sumatra. So it's, yeah, a very transparent way of doing things. Um Prabowo Sabianto is a two-time <laughs> Nepo baby as well. His father was an incredibly influential finance minister and economist within the Sukarno and then the Suharto governments. There's a long legacy of this. It seems to be quite contained, maybe at half a dozen or so families, whereas in the Philippines it seems to be, you know, everybody. So I think that's interesting. I don't know if... Um, uh, if it's going to work long term, I can't imagine any politician, let alone one of the younger fellas, repeating Jokowi's success.
0: Because Jokowi himself, he wasn't someone who was from a political family, right? Like he's come from relatively modest background, I believe. Like he, you know, he's not the child of of a senior politician. No,
1: no, he's um he's very much a, an outlier in that he wasn't from a political family or from the military either, which is kind of the one of two options for Indonesian politicians. Um, He was just a normal fella who became a businessman and worked his way up. I don't know if that maybe is a motivation for him to be building his own dynasty or what, but the blatantness of it is kind of insulting, I think.
0: (laughs) At the presidential level, there is a it's a two round system. If uh, a candidate wins a majority of the vote in the first round, they win. If not, there is going to be a runoff in June. Interestingly, I don't know how long we've had that runoff system in Indonesia, but the previous four direct elections all turned into two people up against each other. Whereas this one, you know, there is a clear front runner, but there are three credible candidates running in this election. So in the past, even if they'd had a runoff system there wasn't enough candidates for it to come into play.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. Well, I've had conversations about this with friends recently, because all of these sorts of regular features of presidential campaigns in Indonesia, you know, the debates or the big end of campaign finale events, nobody's too sure what happens if it does go to a runoff, which is totally plausible. No one's sure if there's going to be another round of debates, another huge stadium-packed event. Yeah, it's been on the books for a long time, but in
0: practice, this is the first time. I have to assume there would be. Like the campaign won't stop, right? It'll just, there'll be one less candidate and the campaign will continue. So I have to assume that there'll be more big events and it'll cost more money and more debates and stuff.
1: So, kind of the vibe is that we're likely to see Probo get through to a second round and likely a niece, but nobody's too sure. So then we'll then have like a a fairly bizarre coalition come up between those two candidates. And I think they'll need to have these huge sort of events.
0: You mean the two candidates who aren't Prabowo? You think it's likely that whichever one of them gets knocked out will endorse the other one?
1: Yeah, there's been sort of more and more reporting over the last couple of weeks, especially as it becomes clear that Anis is getting ahead of Gunja, that we should see a combo of PDIP at least backing Anis or vice versa if it turns out that way.
0: I'll just touch briefly on as well with the legislature. So their election's happening in February as well. Um, It's a proportional system. You know, there's some, there's a bit of deviation in terms of number of seats per region but largely it's like large multi-member electorates with i believe an open lists voting systems so it that'll be it's reasonably proportional you get a parliament that has a bunch of parties in it that's probably about all we need to go into the complexities of the legislature
1: that's going to be an interesting one to watch i think um you know it's it's very visual but nobody's talking about these sorts of levels of races but pdip has been the dominant party in the house for at least as long as i can remember and i'm not sure that that's going to be the case after next week i'm really curious to see what happens there because i'm not sure what the run-on effect for such an unpopular campaign for gunja is going to look like for the party as a whole
0: You mentioned a bit of the state of the polling. It looks like Gunja seems to be falling into third, but Prabowo, he's in the 40s, right? Like it wouldn't be a total shock if he managed to squeeze over 50% and win in the first round, but it seems more likely now that he'll be the leading candidate but not get a majority.
1: I think that's exactly right. I think if he does squeak by in the first round, it would be amazing but not a surprise. But I think it's far more likely to go to a runoff, in which case... It'd be him versus one of the other two candidates. And at that point, I don't know anybody who'd be confident to say what will happen
0: next. And as we said, it's unprecedented because there hasn't been a runoff before in Indonesia. Um, So let's go through the three candidates. We've, We've touched them a little bit. Prabowo Subianto, the front runner, you know, he's run for president twice before. He was the vice presidential candidate in 2009 for... Megawati.
1: Uh, Megawati, yeah.
0: Uh, which is interesting, considering how they're very much on opposite sides now. What's his story?
1: He's um an interesting man. I think he's one of these sort of characters that you get in Indonesian politics after nineteen ninety eight. Sort of these these figures that have stuck around for a quarter of a century and have come to dominate Indonesian politics. He is now the defense minister under Jokowi. Before that, he was a politician very, very high up in the army. He has a lot of credible allegations about human rights abuses dating back to Indonesia's occupation of East Timor um, and the 1998 student movement against Suharto. It's interesting to see how much this history was used against him in 2014 and 2019 by PDIP and the Jokowi camp. Those concerns Jokowi has clearly moved on from. And generationally, younger Indonesians are less concerned or less aware of these allegations. According to the polling, Prabowo's biggest support is amongst millennial and Gen Z Indonesians. Um, but still remains quite unpopular with the older generations. So I think we're seeing a very transformative moment. We're moving on completely from post-Reformasi era into something else entirely. And these sorts of, um, I don't know, these sorts of stories, I guess, are being forgotten or moved on from. Anis Baswedan, he's a very interesting fella. He is, everybody's connected to Jokowi in some way in this one. So he was At one stage, Jokowi's education minister during the first Jokowi term. He got the boot, then went on to run for governor of Jakarta in 2017. Things got very, very messy, very dark during that stage. He ended up winning, but that was off the back of, uh, I think what were effectively, I think it's fair to say, race riots. It was very much in response to then-governor Ahok with a Christian and Chinese background. Anissa's campaign was very much of the hardcore Islamist types, which has made it very difficult for him in the presidential election because there are a lot of people who will not forgive him for that. I think Anis is either viewed as quite politically savvy and willing to do what needs to be done to win or a man who's trying to hide certain anti-Chinese, anti-Christian proclivities. I imagine the truth is somewhere in the middle there, but he's going to have a hell of a time winning over a lot of chinese grandmas in jakarta
0: now Gunjar, we've touched on him already uh, the pdip candidate who seems to be falling out of favor now and seems to be the favorite to be knocked out in the first round what's his go
1: i'm so surprised to see what has happened to Gunjar here i feel like if we had this conversation this time last year he would have been the front runner easy it would have been almost a sure thing He seems like a fairly decent candidate, all things considered. He's a governor of central Java, which is an enormous province that has done great things in development over the last few years. But he just has not seemed to have campaigned much. You know, he pops up, but he's not, I don't know, there's something that is stopping him from connecting with voters. And I don't know what it is. There's, it feels like a personality thing that he's just not getting through the way Prabowo or Anise have. And it might not help that PDIP, which is backing him, does seem at times more interested in uh, attacking Jokowi or Jokowi's son Gibran um, rather than focusing on Ganjar and on the campaign. But yeah, it just isn't working for him.
0: Are there major policy issues that distinguish these candidates? Because it doesn't feel like there's much of a sense of being able to identify them as being from the left or the right or that kind of thing. But are there big, big ideological or even identity differences that you can identify between them?
1: Not so much. No, I think the larger differences become almost existential. It's do you want Prabowo and Gibran for uh, depending on who you are for either a candidate pair that will continue Jokowi's legacy and continue all of his programs which do remain remarkably popular so that for the team that's a winner or if you're a niece and Ganjar arguing against Prabowo, do you want to vote for him and go back to the bad old days where the president decides everything and we get dynasties these are not you know policy differences they're more at the core of what you want an indonesia to be and if those are your only options i think that cuts out a lot of people from from what they really need You know, people just want to go to school and eat.
0: (laughs) Is there much in the way of geographical trends about where particular candidates get their support, like particular parts of Indonesia, urban, rural, different islands, that kind of thing? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I think that'll be an interesting one to watch because traditionally Eastern Indonesia goes PDIP, while Sumatra and Java kind of are the two largest islands, of course, and they tend to go... You know, these are provinces in Sumatra, especially that picked Pribo in 2014, 2019, who will presumably do so again um, next week. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in eastern Indonesia, where PDIP usually has dominated in the past. I think the party can't count on that anymore. There's been, you know, it's just purely anecdotal, but immensely popular campaign events throughout those regions for for the last year from the Prabowo camp. So they've certainly been been working out there. Whether that translates to votes and threatens PDRP strongholds will be really interesting to see.
0: What does this campaign say about the state of Indonesian democracy now? Like it's been a quarter of a century since the end of the Sahara regime. You know, this is their fifth direct presidential election, Prabowo coming back after all of his history maybe isn't an encouraging sign, but in the end it does seem like quite a robust political system. Does it feel like it's a democracy that's in a healthy state?
1: I think that's an interesting question because I agree with you. It does feel uh, robust and that's a good thing. Um, I have been reading and listening a lot to Indonesian academics who have been... As particularly in the last week, have been really sounding the alarm of, of, of the state of things. President Jokowi is getting razzed quite a bit. He's technically and legally allowed to be campaigning, but it's not a good, it uh, doesn't feel good to watch your president be actively involved to this extent. Um, and a lot of the leading academics and analysts in Indonesia have come out in the last week and said, you know, this is, completely unacceptable. This is not the democracy we fought for and it's not the democracy we want. We want to see free and fair, but that should include the president keeping his hands off a little bit. I think that's a tough one. They're certainly not wrong, but Jokowi is so popular that I'm not sure uh, that's going to make much of an impact. Indonesians are used to seeing lawmakers show up with, you know, a few gifts before the vote. so. Is there much of a difference between your local candidate doing that and then the president doing it?
0: It's interesting because I think particularly in the context of President Trump in America, there was a lot of talk about norm-breaking and that different democracies have different norms but there's something about that there's a particular expectations about how you behave and if you violate that it can be seen as inappropriate. But then also like a lot of Western countries, it would be um, trivial and unremarkable for the leader of the country to campaign in an election, um, even where they're not standing. You know, obviously, in, in Australian democracy, the prime, you know, if you're not running for re-election, you quit before the election. But even in America, you know, President Obama has strongly campaigned for the Democrats who've run since he stepped down, right? There was nothing remarkable about that. And I'm sure Bush would have done the same if anyone wanted him to be out there campaigning. Um But it's interesting that in Indonesia it's seen as inappropriate. It's almost like the power that Jokowi has is so much. and He's so popular that it's seen as like an inappropriate violation of norms for him to be kind of exercising that power.
1: I I think there's an element of like sort of a mouse that sunk the boat with this latest flare-up. The Gibran constitutional court thing cannot be underplayed. I think a lot of people see that as a... sort of a hallmark of Indonesian democracy in 25 years that will be looked back on as a moment. And I think what we're seeing now is just further evidence to people who believe this, that something's gone wrong here and it's not a direction they want the country to be heading in. But you're right, it is interesting that it works so differently in a country-by-country context. Can we talk about, because people get confused about this, And I don't know, if if most of your listeners are Australian, I always find this really interesting, just like the actual process of voting day is really interesting because it's... uh, I've had to explain to so many people that polls close at 1pm and polls are tiny. So we should have a clear idea of the direction, probably by 5pm local time, Western Indonesia time. And I think that's really exciting. We don't have to stay up too late, Australia.
0: All right, cool. That's really interesting to know. So polls close at one o'clock and polling booths tend to be very small. So the counting will happen quickly. I think Australians sometimes underestimate how much more quickly you can count election results when you don't use preferences and when people just have a single vote that they use. So that's about it for this episode of the Tallyman Podcast. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I
0: love talking about this. And if you're interested in politics in Southeast Asia, I would also recommend signing up for Aaron's newsletter, Dali Mullet Kemulet. I'm a paid subscriber, so consider signing up. It's great. And I'll be doing another episode about Indonesia once the results are in, which we'll be putting out a little bit over a week after this episode goes out. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.